Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're going to do a little recap on the Learning Spaces Week, which happened at Harvard. We're going to be speaking with the co-chairs of that week, Stephen Irving, who's the Assistant Dean for IT at the GSD, and Kristen Sullivan, who's the Program Director of Teaching and Learning Technologies for Hewitt. Welcome to the EdCast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I think people would probably want to know a little bit about what HILT is and the Teaching and Learning Consortium, the TLC. Why don't you give us a little bit brief background about what this group is? Well, let me say, because I'm a, a recipient of a HILT grant, the Harvard Initiative for Learning and Teaching is several years old now here at Harvard and has been seen, it's, it, rise, it comes out of the provost's office as so a very high priority, high visibility effort to rethink, or in some cases actually think, <laughs> learning and teaching here at Harvard. Uh, part of the uh, motivation was thinking, geez, we've been doing some things really well for over 400 years, and there are other things that we know are kind of pioneering uh, frontiers for us. And so the coming of video into the world and the coming of the web were two things that caught the attention. Uh, and so this the, the HILT organization touches every school Every program, every dean is uh, regularly briefed and supportive and sponsors a wide range of kinds of events that are university-wide and often quite focused. The, um, the Teaching and Learning Consortium, which is known as TLC, is a group of about 45 academic support professionals from across the university um, that get together regularly, whether it's monthly or bi-monthly, to address um, Ac uh, teaching and learning topics of common interest across the schools. So um, a while back now, last fall I think, um, at one of the regular TLC meetings, we were brainstorming areas of focus for the coming year. We talked a lot about assessment and the other topic that came up pretty strongly was the notion of learning spaces. And out of that set of conversations, we decided that we would focus our efforts during this um, spring semester in preparing and delivering uh, what turned out to be the Learning Spaces Week. This was um, a four-day convening. That was a conscious decision that we didn't want to just have a one-day symposium or um, a half-day event. We wanted to give it the space that was necessary, the, the metaphorical space that was necessary to share the literal space across the university. So um, once as a group, the TLC decided that um, we wanted to create a Learning Spaces Week. Um, then we created a subcommittee, and Stephen and I had the opportunity to um, shepherd that uh, committee through our thinking and planning process, resulting in what turned out to be uh, an awesome set of days um, across four parts of campus, um, both in Cambridge and Alston and the Longwood area. That was a set of informal visits to both classroom spaces and informal learning spaces, as well as having some structured activities from panels to workshops around different aspects of learning space design and planning process. This was open to the whole university and, um, and had the intent of helping raise awareness at the university about formal and informal learning spaces. Um, divided by discipline, um, by school, looking for opportunities to say this transcends any individual discipline and then other points when there's a very um, specific need for discipline specific space. So that was just an example of 
Hilt's good efforts with the Teaching and Learning Consortium resulting in what we're here to talk about today. So I'm curious, learning spaces is a broad topic, and I bet you our listeners would be interested to hear what are some of the learning spaces you talked about, going and visiting the various campuses, talking about the different ways people can learn in these sort of contexts across the university. Give us a, paint us a couple pictures about what these spaces are. One of the things that was, um, that prompted this week was the Hilt organization, uh, one of the things they do is provide grant money for various kinds of projects to, um, through proposals, a, a pretty well-vetted proposal system. And they observed that they were getting increasing numbers of requests for space-related kinds of things. Often, when we think about uh, innovations in pedagogy, some of them are, are purely uh, social, how we think, organize, and instruct, but partly they are what tools do we use, whether they're computers or projectors or smart boards, et cetera. And these things, equipment has spatial implications. So that was one of the things. Um, I think I became one of the co-chairs for this organization, partly because we had a fairly visible HILT-funded project to build a new space within the Graduate School of Design, which is a media-rich environment to begin with, architects, landscape architects, urban designers, and so on. Um, and we built basically a, a, a wall, a room of pixels, not just a wall of pixels, but a room of pixels with multi, many displays and a very rich, interesting multimedia pixel management image rich environment. And the question was, after a while, okay, that's interesting. It's clearly even sometimes very cool. But what impact does it have on learning and how would we measure that? What words do we have for talking about that? So that was one case we know, for example, of the physics professors who observed that they often wanted to do experiments that were literally destructive and that feeling that they were in a very fancy classroom with oak paneling and pristine surfaces did not sort of support this idea. Let's hit this with a hammer and see what happens. Um, and so that was another one of the kind of the, the black, the cybox uh, project here at Harvard, uh, we learned from our colleagues in the medical school that medicine, which has really been rethinking um, the pedagogy and the training of, of doctors and clinical professionals and so on, had begun to rethink 400 years of how examination rooms are built, how uh, slide collections are managed, just all kinds of things across libraries, laboratories, and as Kristen said before, classrooms and informal learning spaces. We, we touched all of them in, in that period. We, when we went into this, we didn't actually know how many such spaces Harvard has. Uh, and we didn't even know quite exactly what constituted the criteria. Uh, we came up with kind of less than 100 that we know about, certainly more than 40 or 50. And it depends on what our criteria are. Kristen, uh, a little bit about what you thought some of the themes, the challenges, and the opportunities of the week were. You know, you went through the four-day uh, uh, sessions, and, and what, it, what came from that? Was it that there was a need for better training in these types of spaces? There was a need to understand uh, optimizing the spaces for teaching and learning, um, things that didn't work that they want to maybe phase out? Talk about some of the themes, challenges, and opportunities. The week, I would say, was a resounding success. Even the um, under-attended sessions were informative to us as planners of events like this. Um, but I think that really was the exception. We had a, um, our intention was to offer a sort of a flexible set of opportunities for people to visit spaces they wouldn't otherwise have um, a chance to see. And we also wanted to have it in a concentrated manner to give a visitor the opportunity to really um, 
dive into the world of formal and informal spaces. So, um, for example, um, somebody on a, a given day could go to Harvard Kennedy School and visit a classroom that previously had been um, kind of run down and uh, set up in a way that wasn't uh, helpful to the way that the faculty now teach at the Kennedy School in terms of case-based teaching. And we got to experience a faculty member um, communicate a mini case in this case setting. Then we stepped outside of the classroom and noticed how the Kennedy School used the alcoves in their stair um, well going up the stairs through four sets to have informal learning spaces for students. From there, we crossed the river to the business school, a place that's well known to have awesome case-based teaching classrooms, and you are welcome to see those if you wanted. I chose to go to the Hives, which is the second floor of Harvard's Innovation Lab, the iLab, to check out the new kind of learning spaces that HBS has invested in to support um, the broadened uh, approaches that HBS faculty are having to um, helping their students learn through group and project work. So basically, um, those classroom spaces were more flexible. A lot of wireless, a lot of whiteboards, a lot of furniture with wheels on it. I'd say that's a reframe that we saw in terms of flexible learning spaces. Um, from there, we hiked back up to this very campus here at HGSC and checked out a new classroom in Longfellow third floor that supports a variety of opportunities for teaching and learning, whether you want to have a hundred person course, whether you want to break students into small groups, whether you want that space to be in um, to be one room or two. And probably the most noteworthy of that specific space was there's no front of the room. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that the whole week was an opportunity to invite the community, whether you're faculty or teaching staff or academic support professionals or even students, to get a flavor of uh, the richness of the university in general, because a lot of jobs don't allow you to go from school to school, and to actually go into classrooms and learning spaces, because again, your job might not invite that, and through this intense four-day effort, to be able to really get a sense of the um, diversity and also some of the um, commonalities across campuses around how faculty teach and how students learn today. Uh, Kristen, you talk about the richness of the university. Stephen, you want to share a little bit more about a 3D map that was created that kind of shows all of these in context of one Harvard, here, here we are. Early in this process, when we realized we needed an inventory, um, I realized we were starting thinking about making a list, and my mind automatically goes to the 3D space because we knew we were talking about space. So I said, well, a list can often give rise to a map. Let's have a map as well partly because I knew that here at Harvard, our project and planning organization was working on some 3D mapping capability of the entire campus. Um, I knew we had a map of the campus in 3D that they were kind of ready to roll out, but actually hadn't had a project that made sense. It was just a kind of an interesting idea up to that point. I said, this really makes sense because several things. Um, one thing, maps can reveal spatial patterns. And one of the questions was, is there any pattern spatially to these? Are they all in the basement? Are they all, all on the east side of the river, et cetera? Uh, so that was a, a hypothesis that we could test using the map, which was a, a useful piece of it. Um, also, we knew that at least several of these spaces, because they were in a basement or an attic or so on, were actually hard to find, mm -hmm. and that it might be helpful during the four days to have navigation aids so that people could actually come. And then finally, part of the documentation about what these places are is not just typically 
a description is often a plan, but even not just a plan, really a 3D volumetric diagram of the space and how it works. And so the idea was that this was really a part of the data gathering on the one hand, um, a navigation aid for the thing, for the, for the event, and then indeed a framework, because it's got a database on the back end for an ongoing project here at Harvard to continue to think about this, whether it's through Hilt's organization or through the project and plan real estate organization, et cetera. Uh, final question here. How do you guys envision uh, Learning Spaces Week in the future? W where do you go from here? What's the next step if this ends up being a yearly thing? Kristen? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, we got together as a subcommittee after the conclusion of the week to do a debrief, on, a sort of a plus delta on what went well and what we'd like to change. Um, some of our high-level takeaways from that um, include the community has a huge appetite to see the campuses, to see the learning spaces. Um, we also, as a community, have a busy schedule. <laughs> and so one of the takeaways was four full days is kind of a lot to ask of someone, but people want to um, see what we're offering to them. So I think the next time we do a Learning Spaces Week, we might have it more focused um, by theme, such as uh, classrooms, informal learning spaces, maker spaces, break it down to be possibly more um, a, a set of learning spaces events over the course of a year. So those four days might not take place in a row next to each other, but maybe one a quarter based on theme. The, um, the bottom line is I think that uh, we concluded that it's a, it's a useful opportunity for the community to have a formal way to visit campuses, to see formal and informal learning spaces, both for our general edification and to get ideas to bring back to our own schools, and that uh, we're looking forward to figuring out the details on what we'll do next. Stephen, final reflection before we call it a day? Yeah, one of the things that was perfectly clear from our own experiment and many of the places we visited um, is that wheels are great. Kristen said it once already, but wheels on furniture, if change is important, and if you can't change something, you're feeling frustrated by it. But if it's movable, so computing has gone mobile. We know that education is in large part mobile. So the more we can make mobility a part of the space, and this is one of the challenges. How do you make a space that is both mobile and also productive and not always slipping out from underneath you uh, and rolling around? One of the great things about room 334 uh, here at, at Longfellow, uh, it's a big, open, empty space. And this echoes a, a fundamental tenet of urban design and architecture. When in doubt, just make a big open space and it will fill up, whether it's a farmer's market or a protest march or whatever. And I think that's one of the enduring lessons from this project. Stephen Irvin and Kristen Sullivan, thanks for being on the EdCast today. And uh, for more information on Hilt or for your work, is there a website people can go to? Absolutely. Um, to visit uh, the Hilt website, just go to hilt.harvard.edu. There's a, a special tab under events that talks about Learning Spaces Week. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.